Please turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 19. You'll notice I have one title in the bulletin, one title on the outline. That's because I have to have the title done by Thursday, and Thursday to Sunday things happen, and so I changed it to the what's on the insert. Next week, Lord willing, the title that you see in the bulletin will be the title. And the reason is there's just too much information in this 19th chapter. Believe me, it's not because I want to preach Genesis 19 twice, but it is laden with uh, information for us. Uh, God's Word is so rich, and I don't want to uh, just take one swoop through this really dense chapter. So today I will look at it uh, from a higher level. Um, The main lesson that we'll learn from this, we know because uh, the New Testament says so, even Jesus' own words, um, this picture, this destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah that we'll see in this passage is meant to be a bit of a picture of the final judgment to come a picture of God's righteous judgment. It teaches us something of his righteous character and and the swiftness of it and the certainty of it. And so he's teaching Abraham that because uh, Abraham's been wrestling with him over the fate of Sodom. So he's teaching Abraham something of his righteousness and justice. And over the centuries, he's taught his people this and us today. We still learn from this. So we'll take a higher view of it, a kind of flying high, 30,000 feet, looking at what's happening. And then next week, I want to go back through it, though, with a special emphasis on the person of Lot. Lot is a a rather pathetic character, honestly, in Scripture. And I think we should take time there because his compromises um, with God and God's Word and God's standard, there's lessons there that are, are timeless. So we should spend time on the person of Lot and his wife in the, what happens with his daughters at the end. It's all difficult to read. It's, it's tough. God's Word is very, very blunt. It's not overly graphic, but it's specific, and it tells us things that are um, difficult to hear. But as God's people, we know His Word is edifying, and we live in a world um, that we have to have this kind of information so that we can navigate this world. So with that preface, let's now look at chapter 19. I will read the first 29 verses. Um, we'll look at it this week and then again from a slightly different angle next week. This is God's holy word. It's inspired, it's inerrant, it's authoritative, it's for us and for our edification. Here now as I read Genesis 19. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, no, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered, in, entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people, to the last man, surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Lot went out. To the men at the entrance, shut the door after him and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, Stand back. And they said, This fellow came to sojourn and has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. 
But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out groping for the door. Then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city? Bring them out of the place, for we are about to destroy this place, because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, Up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought them out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or step Stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, Oh no, my lords, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight. And you have shown me great kindness in saving my life, but I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved." He said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore the name of the city was called Zoar. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of, the, out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities in all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. O Lord, we come to a disturbing chapter in the Bible The content herein makes us cringe and feel uncomfortable, and it's not because we can't believe what we're reading or think you're unfair, but rather it's because we know the depth of human depravity in our violations against your righteousness. We know your just judgment. You're so patient with us, and when we see this judgment actually happen, we know that you have every right to do it. We know our own guilt. We don't look upon anybody in any passage or any situation and think we are better. We know it's only because of your grace interceding in the person of Jesus Christ that we have refuge. Lord, you teach us from this passage something of your righteousness and your justice and your judgment. 
Lord, I pray for those who believe that we would once again be amazed by the grace that you've shown us in Christ, the refuge we have in him. For those who do not believe that this would be an opportunity to not act like Lot's sons-in-law, to know this is not jesting. Lord, deepen all of our appreciation for your righteousness along with a healthy conviction for our sin and a need for the salvation that you provide through Abraham's greater son, our Lord Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. So today let's walk through this passage and see the righteous judgment of God upon Sodom and Gomorrah. And there are, really, there are several cities in this These cities were located at the north end of the Dead Sea. Some old commentaries will surmise that it might have been on the south side of the Dead Sea, but in the last five years, excavations have happened that show that the cities of the plains were actually on the north side of the Dead Sea. And so you remember Abraham's looking down upon the city of Gomorrah as the angels go off to, to to go to Sodom and Gomorrah and check out, investigate, was the outcry about the wickedness of that region as bad as they had heard. And of course, the angels are doing this as a way of, of noting for the record of history that Sodom and Gomorrah really were doing the things that the regions were saying about them. Um, this is the purpose for their visit, to make sure there's no doubt about what was happening in the guilt of that city and its inhabitants. The event, though, serves as something else for us because Jesus later, when he's talking about his coming again, his judgment, Um, he says to those who are listening to him something very specific with reference to Sodom and Gomorrah. So we know something of why this is in the Bible. Jesus says in Luke 17, Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed." He's saying that something of this judgment we read in Genesis 19 will be true of the final judgment. It could be also true of any immediate judgment God might bring uh, on a smaller scale. It could be sudden, that's the point. People won't be ready, that's the point. And they ought to be ready when they see this kind of mass judgment that you, you, you find in the account in Genesis 19. Later, the apostle Peter refers to this also when looking ahead to Christ's final judgment in his return. Of course, to those who are believers, when they hear this, it it, it puts us in awe of God, but it also gives us an immediate sense of relief that in Christ we know that we're safe from these judgments. But nevertheless, we should know why this is in the Bible. And Peter writes in 2 Peter 2, If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. So it stands as a warning, a necessary warning for us to consider, to read, to have preached the righteous judgment of God, it comes swiftly, surely, fairly. The destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, as we read it here, on the high level anyways, the destruction of Sodom and the cities and the plains, it stands as a bit of a prototype of God's judgment, especially his final judgment. Let's walk through the passage and take special notes of some of the details. Moses is very careful to give us details here. Um, We have an actual historic account unfolding. Verse 1 of our passage, the two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. Already we know quite a bit about what has happened to Lot over these years since he and Abraham split company. Uh, The angels had left Abraham not too long before and had to have made supernatural haste to get there 
at this time before sunfall. They were there to investigate and confirm what had been said about Sodom and the, the widespread nature of their wickedness, the total corruption that had been spoken of about this place. Now, Lot's position at the gate indicates something of his importance in the city. Some commentators say that he could have been, on the, he could have been part of the, the judicial system, maybe even a judge, but definitely some kind of a leader, even just a cultural leader, where he had a spot in the gate complex. This isn't just a gate like a wrought iron gate with a, with a swinging door. This, is, this would have a complex, uh, almost like a welcome center in antiquity, where you'd have these buildings in a place that visitors would have to come through to check in. And you could see them coming in. And many people of the city would be looking to see who's coming. They may be waiting for somebody. There could be some kind of commerce that's going to happen. Whatever the case, there was Lot not too long before sunfall, and he was there watching the gate area. That's when he sees these two men come in. And these weren't mere men. He knew they could, there was something about their appearance that definitely stuck out to Lot. It says in the second part of verse 1, when Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth. He sees something superior about their personage. They're in the form of people, but there's something about them that really stands out. He says in verse 2, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. Lot is so compromised by this point. He has become numb to the wickedness of Sodom. He only notices it to be something special in its wickedness when a visitor comes. And when they see it, they're, they're not going to believe what they see. It's awful. What might happen to them? And there's this bit of his conscience that's constantly vexed. We know this because the New Testament says so. There's nothing about Lot in this passage that will think much of him. But he is vexed in his spirit about things. He's there. He takes in the angels. He tries to convince them not to go into the center of the city. He knows what will happen to them there. But he's so compromised in his doing that he comes off as pushy here when they say something different than what he desires. Turn aside to your servant's house Spend the night, wash your feet. He's trying to cover up the unrighteousness of Sodom. He's trying to cover up how bad it is. And here's what we have to understand, first and foremost. All unrighteousness will be brought to light at some point in God's time. Sodom had developed over years, maybe three centuries by the time it gets to this place. But here Lot thinks he's going to be able to cover this from these men who are of some repute he can tell. What do we know about Sodom. Well, we know quite a bit from the angle that Scripture gives us. We know that the descendants come from Ham. Remember the son of Noah who was cursed for basically mocking his and disrespecting his father? The Hamites became the Canaanites, and the Canaanites took over this area and especially planted or founded Sodom and several cities that existed in the plains, Gomorrah being one as well. There were probably 10 to 50,000 people that lived in this plain in the Bronze Age, the time of Abraham, the time we're looking at. It was a beautiful city to behold. The Jordan River came down into the Dead Sea. It was very fertile. It would have been a beautiful city to behold in antiquity, very attractive for all the things that it, it gave to the eyes that you could see. A relatively old Canaanite city for this time. It would have worshipped the same Canaanite gods that the Canaanites always did. And they would have fertility cults uh, linked into all of it with temples to those gods. 
all of this would have been true of Sodom in a place that would have been attractive for all the commerce, where it was located, the people, all the things that were happening would have been attractive to someone, especially someone who was not convicted, who did not have any alliance with the God of Abraham. That shouldn't have been Lot, but Lot was certainly attracted to it. What do we know of the sins of Sodom? We know what happens here, and it's pretty clear. But we have a couple interesting texts that really give us the fabric of the activities that were happening in Sodom, so we can be clear about it. Lots of gymnastics go on with the biblical text today. Let's just see what the Bible says about Sodom. In Ezekiel, the prophet is actually scolding Israel some years after this. Uh, Israel is defiant in uh, their relationship with their covenant God. They're looking more like the Canaanites. In Ezekiel, the prophet says to the Israelites as a way of convicting them for their sin, he says, you're like the sister of Sodom. And listen to the specifics of what Ezekiel says. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. He's now talking to Israel. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and the needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me. So I removed them when I saw it. So Ezekiel describes a place that had grown in its arrogance, grown in its pride, grown in its excess. Then it did an abomination. It had culminated in some way. And we see this way in the text before us in Genesis 19. We go to the New Testament, one of several places that characterizes what the sins of Sodom were. In Jude 7, Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Sodom was an example of what happens when sin takes root and goes unchecked over the years. With no salt of the people of God mixed in, they just keep going further and further with their sins in all ways, culminating in the sexual sin that you see that really characterizes them when these angels come. There's no holding back here from Moses. He points exactly what was happening with the men of the city acting out with their homosexual desires to attack these angels. That was the culmination, the abomination. It had come to characterize who they were. And that's why for many, many years up into the last hundred maybe, sodomy was always connected with the sodomites for a reason for its explicit reasoning, as it's laid out for us, as uncomfortable as it is, clearly in the text. We know what happens here because look at verse 4 of our passage. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man. Do you think Moses is trying to make really clear what's happening here? They surrounded the house, and they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. And we know this knowing them is a reference to relations. Steinman, who comments on this passage, said, the complete corruption of the city is shown by the comprehensive description of the men who surrounded Lot's house and their intentions. It had become who they were. This is their characteristic uh, practice. This had become the dominant way of life in Sodom, and it was now going to be forced upon those who were visiting. There was no restraining their sinful lusts as they called for Lot to give up his guests to be sexually assaulted by this horde of sodomites. Verse 4, the men of the city, every one of them surrounded the house. The violent depravity here was extraordinary. Um, Everywhere in Scripture, 
Sexual practice outside the bonds of marriage is condemned, whatever version it may be. Many places, homosexuality is condemned explicitly. Here in Sodom, we see what is actually described by the Apostle Paul in Romans 1. In Romans 1, Paul depicts something that you can see uh, make, making a, a culminating point in Sodom. In Romans, Paul's warning people who think of themselves as wiser than God and really start to think they don't need God. In fact, there is no God, people will start to say. So we can live life the way we want, the way we feel, the way we construct life to be. We have wisdom to do this. And Paul says that kind of thinking leads down a continuum. It's a digressing continuum into ever-increasing wickedness. And this is how the apostle describes it. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal gods for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, in light of this, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Without any witness for God and his truth, this is where people go. They, they go downward and I digress. He gave them up to this, it says in Romans chapter 1, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. When we think we have the answers, there is no God to give them the, us the answers, we're worshiping the creator. And we're, we start as a society when we think this way thoroughly to go down this path. And then it says in Romans 1 verse 26, for this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. He's going to let them go their way to find the end result of that, to manifest what happens when you, when you put off God and say the creator is, is, is better or greater. For their women exchange natural relations for those who are contrary to nature. So the very basis of the human uh, societies build with man and woman being married in Genesis 1 and the whole fabric of what makes a society actually exist and run, that will be violated because they're putting away the Creator. In fact, people will turn in their relations. It says, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. So the unrighteousness of mankind will always eventually be revealed. And where there's no salt and light to make impact, it unravels like it did in Sodom. Hopefully it's a, a more or less an unprecedented level of corruption that happened in that culture to get to the point that we see it. If we look at verse 6 of our passage, Lot went out to the men at the entrance when this was happening, and he shut the door after him. You can imagine him stepping outside and shutting the door behind him, trying to keep them from coming into the house to get his guests. He said, I beg you, my brothers, which says a lot about where Lot's heart was. I beg you, my brothers... Do not act so wickedly. He knew what they intended to do to his guests. And what Lot says next is easily the most vile thing in the whole chapter that's filled with vileness. It shows how deeply compromised the nephew of Abraham had become in his many years in Sodom. In Genesis 13, he merely pitched his tent towards Sodom. A few chapters later, he's living in Sodom. Chapter 19, he's at the city gate as a leader. And now he says what he says in verse 8 as a response. Now, I'll grant you, it's true that in his mind, in the ancient Near Eastern culture, hospitality says that if any harm falls upon my guests when they're in my house, that I am culpable. But it does not excuse what he says here in verse 8. Behold, he says to these, these wicked people, I have two daughters who have not known any man. 
Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. How deranged and sick had Lot become over these years living in Sodom. But they said, stand back. They were not impressed with what he was, how dare this guy tell us what to do, these wicked people say. Stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn, and now he's become our judge? Now we'll deal worse with you than with them. And they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. Notice something about a godless culture. As godless as they are, as happy as they are to live in their wickedness, as soon as someone calls them out for their wickedness, now they're sensitive. How dare this guy call us wicked, even though they're about to do the most violent, wicked things you can imagine? It was Rayburn who said, even the most vicious, evil people are highly sensitive to even the whiff of judgment. Lot proposes that they don't rape his guests, and they take offense that he thinks that he's morally superior. This is a depraved mob. This is Sodom at this point. And the angels of God have seen enough. They saw what they needed to see. It's confirmed. Verse 10, but the men reached out with supernatural power, for sure, reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out groping for the floor, probably like blinding Paul, who was Saul at the time. These people right around the door, they fall around, they're groping around, everybody sees what's happening. Unrighteousness will always be exposed eventually. And that's what we have in these openings. Even though Lot tries, you, can't, you could try for so long, it cannot be covered. The truth comes out. And as a result, God in his justice, in his righteousness, will judge, will punish that unrighteousness. And that's what unfolds in the verses that follow. The days of Noah stand out as closely resembling this, where everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes and God brings that mass judgment. This is the only other example. In fact, these are the two examples that you hear throughout Scripture that give us an idea of the swiftness of God's judgment. This is why Peter refers to this as an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. The angels here are determined now to execute God's judgment, his punishment on Sodom, and that the wheels of that judgment start to move. Look at verse 12 of our passage. Then the men said to Lot, They're in the house now, holding the door back. Have you anyone else here? Sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city, bring them out of this place. For we are about to destroy this place because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. What grace that would send these angels to Lot, who the New Testament says he believed, to give the word of God, like Abraham was given a word, that God would speak and give him this warning, what grace there is for Lot here. And here he is, being warned of this judgment. And and as a side note, when you think of judgment for sin, don't only think in terms of the final wrath to come, the last day. That's a certainty, a prototype of that here. But there are many levels to the judgment of sin, we all know. The wages of sin is death. All of us understand death because we're all dying at some level. All of us will die physically because of sin. Not just your particular sin, but sin in general. Uh, That's the body of sin and death that we have until resurrection. Now, the beauty is for those who are believers, we recognize our life is eternally hid with Christ and God. 
And so we die physically, but we go to be with him, and then we experience a resurrection with a new body and a new heaven, a new earth, that glorious picture, that final Canaan that we look forward to, that Abraham looked forward to. That's all ours in Christ. But we still recognize that most of us will have to pass through death because of sin. That's one level in which sin is, is judged. But there's also the results of the sins we commit. God's not punishing us any further because we're his children, but when we lie, that ends up messing up our relationships and we suffer with that consequence of sin. So there's the micro-judgments for sin that just are laden into when we sin. That's what sin does. It causes pain. But then there's also the fact of our dying. If we're not in Christ, we do have to face immediate judgment then. So what I'm saying to you is this forecast of final judgment, don't think of judgment as so far away because that may not be far away. But even if that's not far away, you're not going to live that long, and you will have to face the judgment. It comes for man to die once, and then the judgment. So are you standing at that judgment clothed in Christ's righteousness, or are you standing there with your record of wrongs? And here's the thing to remember. Whatever Lot thought his records of wrongs were, I promise you, they were way worse. And here's the news for you. This is actually good news. Think of how bad you know your life to be. That's good news. Well, here's the good news. It's way worse than you know. That's the fact. That's the truth. It's sort of like a credit card bill is the way I describe it. I always think I spent less than I did until I get the bill. It's always more. So whatever you think your level of sinfulness is, it's always more. But if you're in Christ, you hide in him. If you're not, then you're going to face that judgment. So this is, uh, this is Im- imminent for all of us, whether it's the final judgment or when we go to be in front of the judgment seat. It's coming for us. We have to recognize this. This is why Jesus says, when he's talking about this episode, so will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. Now, back to the story. Lot's getting, given this grace, revelation about what God's about to do. So he hears this in verse 14. Now, the problem here, and this will come into the message next week, Lot's character in word is so compromised that even though he's given life and death information, people don't hear him. Verse 14, so Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. Tragic line. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. In their fleshly security, Hughes said, they did not believe in divine judgment. Dear one, hear me. Don't be like Lot's sons-in-laws. It's not a joke. None of what I'm saying is a joke. They thought such talk was a joke and nothing, and Lot's credibility is on display here. They didn't have the slightest measure of God's infinite uh, care about his infinite wrath to come. So many believe that God won't actually judge. Verse 15, as the morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. This is how conflicted Lot was, despite angelic beings just fighting off the whole city of men with the door, striking them blind, speaking this revelation to him. He still lingers because there's a bit of him that loves Sodom. So the men seize him and his wife, grab him and their two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. Verse 17, and as they brought them out, one said, 
Escape for your life. He had him outside the city. Okay, now you've got to run. You've got to run, escape for your life. Go into the hills. Get as high as you can. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. Now, it's hard for me to understand what comes next from Lot. It could be he was not in physical condition enough. Maybe the gluttony of the city made it where he couldn't even move if he wanted to move. Whatever the case is, something about Lot. Here's this word from the angels and said, I can't run. I can't go. I can't do that. Look what he says. Oh, no, my lords, verse 18. Behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life, but I cannot escape to the hills, lest disaster overtake me, and I won't make it. Come on. Behold, hit this city here, one of the other cities in the plain, farthest away, Zoar, as it becomes called. That's close enough to go to. That little, isn't it a little one? My life will be saved there. Just, you can hear the sniveling of Lot at this point in his life. And the angel said, behold, I grant you this favor also. Why is he being so gracious to Lot? That comes next. I will not overthrow the city which you have spoken. Escape there quickly to that little city. For I can do nothing till you arrive there. Save that as a thought. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zoar. And then the visitation of God's judgment for the ages. Verse 23, the sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then... When he got to Zoar, then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. I heard someone give um, their explanation. I understand we don't need naturalistic explanations for what God's word says, but it was an interesting take from people who had a high, have a high view of scripture. They're ones who have been doing the excavations there around Sodom. There is three feet of ash that you can find in the sedimentary levels around that place. And one scholar thought it's quite possible, the description of the sulfur and the fire, it could very well be a meteor that comes in and then breaks up upon its entrance and then meteorites pulverize and vaporize with those elements, that whole area, like an atom bomb would. It's that kind of incineration that would have, incineration that would have happened. And maybe that accounts for the layers of ash that can be found there. James Boyce says it this way, one moment life was continuing as it had for centuries. Business people were opening their shops in the morning. Doors to cafes were swinging open. Industrious women were starting to do their wash and their household activities. The next moment, sulfurous fire was consuming the entire town and thick black clouds were blotting out the sun's light. He overthrew those cities, verse 25, and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him, she looked back and she became a pillar of salt. More on that as we approach the passage from the angle of Lot next week. What of all this heavy passage, heavy passage, especially I have to preach it twice in one morning. But these last verses offer us the refuge, the reference to the refuge that we need to hear, that the godly will listen to and hear, as heavy a passage as this is. All of us, like Abraham, should have a weight about us when we see this kind of judgment, knowing Every one of us should receive that kind of judgment. It's only for the grace of God that he's given us grace. We don't even know why he would show us grace. That should be our reaction, but then we should give him praise that he's given us a way to escape this wrath to come. Verse 27, we return now back to Abraham. Abraham, who we left off with his powerful prayer of intercession for Sodom, where God said, if there are even 10 people here, I will not do it, Abraham. And Abraham knew that God is good to his word, that the judge of the universe will do what's right. And if he says he will not destroy it if there are ten people, he will not. 
But what did Abraham see? Verse 27, and Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. That's the same place that he prayed, same place where he drew near to God, wrestled with God for the lives of those who lived in Sodom and the city, cities on the plains. The angels had to draw, drag Lot to safety. Of course, Abraham doesn't know this at this point. It says in verse 28, and he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like a smoke of a furnace, maybe a, a mushroom cloud up over what he saw down in the valley. Kidner says, Moses, by a master stroke of narrative, he shows Abraham here, who will outlive all such time servers, is shown standing at his place of intercession, a silent witness of the catastrophe that he has striven to avert. But no doubt, trusting that God, the God of the universe, has done what's right. God displays the righteous judgment that only he can give. And this was something he was teaching Abraham at a key moment and teaches us today. You remember when he was deciding on how to tell Abraham what his will was in Genesis 18. Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Abraham has a big part to play in the unfolding plan of redemption, in the bringing of Messiah. He has an integral part to play in all of this. I'm going to bless the nations and the earth through him. I've chosen him in that he would, on the initial level, command his own children. Command them what? To keep the way of the Lord. How? In doing righteousness and doing justice. For I want to bring Abraham into all the promises that I have given him. So I will tell him this about what I will do. Then Abraham engages with him in prayer. It said, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked, working all the way down to just ten people, if ten righteous are there? He says to God, far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked so that the righteous fare as the wicked. God said, I won't if there's even ten. Well, there's not even one. Not actually. You could say technically Lot believed. We see that testimony of him. But he had no witness left. He had no purifying impact whatsoever on the place he lived. Why did God spare Lot? That's what speaks to all of us today. Why would he spare Lot? He's teaching us something of his righteousness and justice for sure. But he's also teaching us how to escape. How did Lot escape? The city didn't have ten righteous people. God's under no obligation. Lot could have died there. Remember something that one of the angels said. Look in verse 22. You remember Lot is trying to find a place closer to escape to because he doesn't think he can get into the hills. And this is going to delay things. And the angel says, verse 22, escape there quickly then. For I can do nothing till you arrive there. The righteous judgment of God cannot fall upon Lot until he arrives there? How could this be? The angel restricted from destroying the city until Lot escapes so that Lot's not destroyed. On what basis was Lot spared this judgment? Look at verse 29, the last verse of the passage we're looking at. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst 
of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. Lot gets refuge not from anything he does, but because someone else has done something for him, has interceded for him. That's how he escapes it, not on his basis. In fact, quite the, in despite of what he did. Abraham's prayers in particular had become the effectual means of God's gracious operation to save Lot from destruction. Abraham's intercession for Lot was the basis for Lot's escape, but we go further. Lot's relationship with Abraham is the basis for his escape. Lot's refuge was found in Abraham, but we go further. God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow. God remembered Abraham. What did he remember about Abraham. Not just his prayer, he remembered Abraham, the one that he showed his grace to, the one that he promised Messiah would come from, who he blessed the nations, that we would be blessed. He promised Abraham that Abraham would have a greater son who would be the Christ, who would be the ultimate refuge for all his people. Not because of us or anything we deserve, but because he would be our refuge, our intercession. That's where we would find our escape from the wrath that should rightly come. James Boyce says to modern listeners, are you thinking that perhaps somehow, in spite of all that is said in the Bible about God's wrath against sin and the certainty of judgment, that everything will nevertheless turn out all right for sinners? Do you really think that? Are you thinking that perhaps somehow judgment will not come? If so, look toward Sodom. That's the point of the story. Learn that judgment is certain, Boyce said that the unsaved are in great danger, and that the task of bringing the gospel to them is of the utmost and overriding importance. Don't assume any of us will get another warning. Don't count on a last-second chance for repentance. Fleeing from the wrath to come means fleeing to Christ, who on his behalf, God accepts us and protects us. And keeps us from his wrath. Because he has bore it for us. Jesus in John 3 says very clearly, after John 3.16, after the, profe- uh, the assurance we heard read earlier, he's still speaking in terms of rightly knowing him for the relationship with God. In John 3, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on them. Please bow with me as I lead us in prayer. O Lord, we are convicted by the destruction of Sodom and the cities on the plain. It's only by your grace that we have been saved from the same downward slide of sin manifested in this account. We claim no superiority over the Sodomites of old or for that matter, the wicked of our own day. We claim only the righteousness of Christ by trust in him, him alone. O Lord, for those who believe, may this account remind us of our need for Christ, and may we cherish his advocacy before your holy throne on our behalf. We know we're safe in him. Give us hearts filled with worship of him who has saved us by his own blood and has served as our perfect representative. To the degree that your children have fallen into sin, we doubt, we struggle. Awaken us by this passage. Assure us of your love. That we would not fear being lost by you, but brought to a new level of love, devotion, and worship of Christ for what he has secured us for and saved us from. O Lord, for those who do not believe, please give them repentance and faith. Please spare them from the wrath to come by regenerating their hearts and making them alive together with Christ. O Lord, your word is true. 
Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on them. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.